Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. So he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. If ever there was a character who liked to grumble and complain, it is Sally Brown, the younger sister of the well-beloved cartoon character, Charlie Brown. In the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Sally sets out to write a letter to Santa Claus, and she enlists Charlie's help. The letter reads like this. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How's your wife? I have been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and twenties? Now, at this point, Charlie, who is already despondent about the commercialization and greediness of the Christmas season, throws this letter he's been scribing in the air and says, Tens and twenties? Oh, even my baby sister. And he stalks off. And a nonplussed Sally looks at the camera and says, All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is what's fair. All I want is what's fair. None of us would ever or have ever written a letter like this, right? Or do we all have this internal fairness meter by which we measure the world? 
Just this week at staff lunch, we were talking about the zipper merge and how we all know that it is better. It is scientifically proven to work better and be more efficient if you all drive in two lanes just before the merge you switch over and zipper your way through and keep going. But we don't do that, do we? <laughs> we all get over into the one lane as soon as we see any kind of arrow pointing us in that direction. And then we glare at the people audacious enough to drive past us and try to merge just before the arrow. Some of us, even straddle the line to prevent people from going past us. You know who you are. <laughs> because if we have to move over, then so do you. Get to the back of the line. Fair is fair. I know a guy who planted a church out in Newfoundland and became a pastor, and he had never gone to seminary. And that irks me. <laughs> I put in the work. I paid the tuition. I had to study Greek and Hebrew and do my oral comp exams and do all of my classes exams. So if I had to go to seminary, if I had to jump through all the hoops, then so should he. Fair is fair. Our sense of fairness is deeply embedded within us. So the parable of the vineyard workers, I don't think it's actually one of our favorite parables, is it? Most of us hear this story and we are totally incensed right along with those workers who had been out in the field from the crack of dawn. They have been toiling out under the sun for hours and hours, watching as new groups of people show up, listening to those new people complain about the workload and scoffing. <laughs> You don't know nothing. When, when 6 p.m. rolls around, work halts and the workers trudge over to the landowner to get their pay. The ones who were first to the field were promised a denarius for their work. But it's the ones who showed up at five who are paid first. And no one knows what anyone else was promised, but they assume, well, if we were paid a denarius, they'll probably get about an eighth of that. That would be fair, after all. But those workers don't get an eighth of a denarius. The landowner hands each one of them one whole denarius, which brings a look of astonishment and glee to all of the faces in the crowd. The first group can't believe that they have been paid so handsomely. And those who were out in the field at 7 a.m., well, they think they're going to go home with a week's wages. But then the next group goes forward, and the next group and the next group, and all of them are paid one denarius. And finally, the group who went out first and is paid last steps forward, and they too each receive just the denarius they were promised. There's a moment of shocked silence, and then the outcry pours forth. 
they are incensed. We're making exactly the same as them. You're making those lazy yahoos equal to all of us. Us who have been breaking our backs out here for hours. We have worked harder, so we are better than them, and we should be paid more. Fair's fair. Too right, I think we all think as we read this story. That's not fair. When preachers look at a scripture passage, one of the things we do when developing a sermon is to look at what the trouble in a text is and then what the grace is that meets that trouble and then what the same trouble and grace might be for us today. This passage presents an interesting problem though. Because I think the trouble in this text is grace. We like grace in general. We certainly like grace when we experience grace. Grace means that I, sinful little I, am saved. I, who am incapable of doing enough good to save myself, I have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We like this grace. This grace is good news. But the whole sola gratia, by grace alone, that I think we have a little harder time accepting. Most of us operate under a grace and MO. I might be saved by grace. But the fact that I teach Sunday school and drive my neighbor to her doctor's appointments and spend my Saturday mornings cleaning up the parks is surely putting some wheels under that grace and getting me just a little bit further into the comforts of heaven than if I didn't do any of those things. My crown must certainly have a few more jewels than the gruff old man that I know doesn't put a single dime in the offering plate. Dear Jesus, we pray, I have been really good this year. I have been such a good little Christian. So all I want is what's coming to me. All I want is what's fair. We want what's coming to us because that would prove, would reflect to the world that we are just that much better of a person that we have earned our blessings. And human nature is wired, has always been wired, such that all of us want to appear to be better than the next person. My history professor, Jim Bratt, when discussing 19th and 20th century immigrant groups to America would say, all of them were despised upon arrival. The Irish, the Italians, the Dutch, so you would think that they would band together and commiserate, but the opposite happened. They turned on each other, they snubbed their noses at each other, made fun of one another's cooking and rituals, because it didn't matter how far down you were on the social ladder. All that mattered was that you weren't at the very bottom. 
We don't want to be at the bottom of any ladders. We don't want to be the last workers out into the field. We don't want people to look at us and to scoff and to say they don't deserve their place in society. They don't deserve their place in the kingdom. At the end of the day, we don't want to be kicked out by the other workers or by the vineyard owner. So we work hard and we accumulate our trophies and our proofs of superiority, our proofs of good Christian behavior, our tens and twenties, our gifts of precise color and size. And we expect to receive more, to be blessed more, to have a slightly bigger seat at the table than that person over there who clearly has not put in the same time because this will prove to us and to everyone that we are good enough, that we are better, that our spot in the kingdom is at least a little bit more secure than that person's over there. All we want is what's coming to us. All we want is what's fair. Well, the landowner in our parable tells the workers he is being fair. Didn't I promise you a denarius, he says to the grumblers. And isn't that exactly what you got? You did, in fact, get exactly what you had coming to you. And what they got was enough. What we get is enough. Because the thing about grace is you don't need any more of it and you can't have any less of it. It's just grace. The grace that gives each one of us a place in the kingdom, a spot at the table. The grace that says you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to work so hard. You don't have to worry if you measure up to that person over there. The grace that welcomes each one of us and says you are enough. And that, my friends, is good news. Because no matter how hard we might try to be the first ones out in the vineyard, how many of us want our trophies for good behavior so that we can hide behind them and use them to fool everyone else, maybe even fool God? Because we in fact feel, in fact are quite sure that we are the last ones into the field? How often do we feel that we have not done enough? How often are we just waiting for the vineyard owner, for God to say to us, yeah, you just didn't really measure up this year. Nothing but coal for you. 
oh, I can show you my seminary diploma and my license to preach and my YouTube channel of sermons. But when push comes to shove, the reality is that I'm a pretty lousy Christian. I don't pray enough. I don't read scripture enough. I think horribly unkind thoughts about people when they don't let me merge. I fret and I worry and I don't trust God enough. So the real miracle is that God wants me to be part of his kingdom work at all. That he invites me to labor in his vineyard for even 20 minutes. And that, of course, is the crux of this whole story. Those who were first out into the vineyard were only first out because they had been invited. Everyone starts in exactly the same place in this story. They're all waiting in the marketplace. None of them is guaranteed work. None of them have an automatic in with the landowner. Every one of these workers was brought into the vineyard only because the landowner invited them in. And each one of us has our place in the kingdom only because God has invited us in. Because God has, in his abundant mercy, given to each one of us exactly what we have coming to us. Grace. I wonder what would happen to our world, to our communities, to our churches, if we looked at each other and instead of sizing each other up, Instead of trying to assure ourselves that we are just that much more deserving than the next person, if we saw grace, if we saw a person who lives under grace, if we saw ourselves as living under grace, astonished at having received anything at all, and rejoicing because our neighbor has received the same. In a New York Times article from 2018 titled The Uncommon Power of Grace, Peter Weiner writes, if you find yourself in the company of people whose hearts have been captured by grace, count yourself lucky. They love us despite our messy lives. Stay connected to us through our struggles, always holding out the hope of redemption. You don't sense hard edges, dogmatism, or self-righteous judgment from gracious people. There's a tenderness about them that opens doors that had previously been bolted shut. People who have been transformed by grace have a special place in their hearts for those living in the shadows of society. They're easily moved by stories of suffering and step into the breach to heal. And grace, properly understood, always produces gratitude. I want to be a person like that. A person captured by grace. A person who lives in gratitude. 
I want to be the kind of person who doesn't glare at the people flying past me after I've merged, but lets them in ahead of me. Because after all, someone let me in first. I want to be the kind of person who doesn't begrudge someone for serving the kingdom of God without a seminary degree. Because, after all, I was only able to go to seminary because of the financial generosity of other people. Peter Wainer would say that to become like that, to become a more grace-filled person, we should spend time with those who are captured by grace. I would say the first step is to spend time with the grace giver. The one who is not just captured by grace, but who is grace. The one from whom all generosity flows. Spend time in his word. Spend time listening to his voice. Spend time wandering in his creation in awe and wonder. Not to prove anything. Not to earn anything. But so our gratitude might increase. So our knowledge of God's grace and love might increase. So we might become more gracious people. So we might become a community captured by grace, going to the shadows of society, reaching out to the ones who are still waiting to hear good news, the last ones waiting in the marketplace and saying, there is a place for you. Come and meet the vineyard owner. He's got work for us to do. Would you pray with me? And so, God of the vineyard, you who have called us to labor for your kingdom, may we know that this summons to labor is itself grace. May we not be puffed up or arrogant, but work in humility, rejoicing when we see grace at work in the lives of others, trusting that your grace is enough for us. May we toil in gladness, seeking your kingdom here on earth as we await the fullness of your kingdom that is to come. We stand in awe of your grace, O God. May it change the way we live. Amen.